Hi, my name is Kipper Chong Warson, and I'm a design director in San Francisco. And you're listening to How This Works. This is a show where I invite people on to talk about things that they know an awful lot about. And today I have Dr. Laura Sicola with me. We're going to talk about how to use your voice to its best effect. Thanks for making time today, Laura. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So while we talk about the subject matters that my guests know a lot about, I want to start with you. And in order to start with you, I'd love to find out what pronouns you use to refer to yourself. I use he and him. Um, and I use she and her. Actually, I use I when I'm talking about myself. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sure. She is fine. Okay. So Laura, can you tell us a little bit more about you? Like, who are you? Uh, by trade, I am, and by training, I'm a linguist, really. My work is is all about understanding the uh, how speech works and how speech is processed, How why there's a gap, for example, between sometimes what you think you say and what somebody else thinks they hear. Mm. And if you're like me, you've been in that situation once or twice, perhaps in life. <laughs> and uh, I love all the mechanics that go behind that and that help how it helps people to establish better relationships, to avoid misunderstandings, mm -hmm. and just to get to yes, to help progress uh, by knowing that you've been heard and understood. And so has the person that you're speaking with. And when we can do that, that's... That's where progress occurs. Yeah. So, Laura, what's something about you that many people might not guess? I lived in Japan for three years, oh, and wow. uh, that was that was a great experience. Actually, it was broken up into two. One was a year abroad in college, okay. uh, along with an internship and things, and then a few years later, I went back uh, to teach professionally with a uh, at a high school with the city of Nagoya. That was a really great eye opener on both times around, but I think it fed me and what I do now in my work as an executive communications coach, because miscommunications happen on the large and the small, right? And mm. understanding culture and how it influences the way we communicate on the big scale with languages. Look, going to Japan was literally on the opposite side of the world. <laughs> sure. And in many ways, the culture and the language feel like they're on the opposite side of the world. They feel polar opposite. And of course, when you look deep, you realize there's, of course, so many things that we all share. But learning to understand the big differences and to still recognize and accept and even appreciate the small differences, those nuances, that's where real understanding can occur. And learning to do that in a foreign language helps you be more sensitive for learning how to do it more effectively in your first language. Mm. I have so many questions around your experience in Japan, but I think it'll we'll probably circle back to it throughout our conversation. Laura, can you, and you know, I gave a little bit of a summary in the introduction, but can you frame for us what we're talking about today. What is the thing that you know a tremendous amount about? It's really about how where communication or miscommunication happens and how to fix it to get mm. to yes. Mm. Uh, so if you think about, and I, I won't get too geeky technical at the moment, but <laughs> my world is coming from, if you imagine a Venn diagram with three circles on it, okay. the first circle is the math of language. Yeah. understanding all the stuff that nobody bothers to think about. I don't think about how my computer works. I just want it to work. You don't think about how English works. You just use it. Uh, sure. I get the math behind it. Okay. Number two is cognitive processing in language. So how does speech process in the brain? What is it that makes what someone says 
go in one ear and out the other mm. versus what makes it stick and what makes you process it and work with it and where does it register, et cetera. Okay. And then the third is, okay, the geek language would be the socioaffective uh, elements of it, otherwise known as the, the social filters that okay. we create, the changes on the one hand, how I choose to say what I'm going to say based on how diplomatic I want to be, how much detail I want to use, uh. who my audience is, what effect I want to have. And of course, the same filters, which you also have, which are going to influence how you interpret uh, okay. what I say, whether you like it or don't. If you hear a compliment versus an insult, if you hear you know, all those kinds of details um, yeah. where respect comes from or doesn't come from, depending yeah. on your perspective. So when you put all three of those things together, you get where influence comes from, what does or doesn't work. And that's really the core essence of my work is about, I'm an influence coach. It's helping people in leadership positions, um, or anybody who reads my book, frankly, to have more influence by being more effective communicators in a way that allows you to be fully authentic yeah. Be yourself, but yeah. figure out how to adjust the approach in the way that you talk to somebody else, no matter who they are, so that they can hear what it is that you want to hear, but still be you in the process. That's the real key. I see. I, I love that you frame that out as a as a Venn diagram of three um, slightly overlapping circles, the mm -hmm. notion of, you know, the the mechanics, the the math of language. The, I love that phrase, cognitive processing, and then those social filters. Um, and mm -hmm. that where all three of those meet, that's a that's a really great visual. You have a great deal of experience in this field. How did you start? What was the kernel of interest for you? I think the first the first memory that I have of where it was inevitably a, a lifelong trigger. My grandmother, uh, my mother's mother was from Chile. Okay. And, and my mother was actually born there too. They came up here when she was very young to the United States. But when I didn't see my grandmother a lot as a child, just because they lived in different states than we did, but she would come at Christmas. And I remember her on the phone, she would call her siblings who were still back in, in Santiago in mm -hmm. Chile, and she would speak to them. And to me, it was like this magic power, this super power to have this secret code that she knew how to, she could do this thing where she'd make all these weird sounds and somebody else would, uh, would understand it and make those sounds back. And mm. I was so jealous that she had this secret power and mm. I was outside the circle. And of course, everybody else knows that, you know, secret magic code is Spanish, but I was five <laughs> at the sure. time and didn't really understand it. I just knew it was so cool that she could do this. And I just thought, I need to know how to do that. I yeah. want to be able to talk in the secret code too. And that just was a trigger from the time that I was probably five or six of wanting to know foreign languages and just being fascinated by the whole thing. I see. And was that part of the exercise in going to Japan was to not only go to a different geography, but then also to speak Japanese and all of those inherent parts? Uh, it, it definitely was a part of the process okay. right over the years. So I was always interested in foreign languages from that point, um, studied Spanish in middle school and high school and got pretty good at it. And then by college, I 
realized, okay, I'm going to have four years to really dedicate intensively to picking up another language. Okay. So I didn't want to do more Spanish because I was not interested in learning like literature and those, I didn't even like that in English. So I was not going to want to do it in a foreign language. <laughs> sure. And uh, so I thought, well, another romance language, I could probably pick up more easily some other time in life. So let me pick something a little more challenging okay. while I got what I asked for. And so <laughs> I, I thought, well, what's a good business language to complement Spanish in, in the world? And thinking as an 18 year old, and you know, we're going back to the early 90s at that point. So the Japanese economy was had, was really strong and it just seemed like, well, that was an interesting place to go. And they were mm-hmm. more stable than other countries as far as government and that kind of stuff. So I sure. somehow talked my parents into letting me go to Japan for a year for an abroad program, which I'm sure they had their hearts in their throats the entire time, <laughs> having never been there and not knowing anything about the country or culture. But that was the, the initial motivation. And it was, so I majored in international studies, specifically Japanese and East Asian studies. And of course the minored in the language from there. So it was a, it was a pretty hardcore focus from early on. I see. Take us from, so you, you have in early childhood, you have this interest in other languages, one way that it manifests is this year abroad in college. And then a few years later, how, how else have you followed this path to get to where you are? Everything that I have done has been somehow around language and culture, communication and education. That's that's been the the unifying threads mm-hmm. or threads through it. So uh, after college, shortly thereafter, went to Los Angeles and started teaching in elementary school in a bilingual program in South Central LA. And that was okay. back to Spanish again, even after spending four years of Japanese. So it was a bilingual English and Spanish. And that was a very different world also because uh, A, it was education and I you know, had to quick do some quick tap dancing to get certified and to be a teacher. <laughs> sure. But my Spanish from learning it in high school in New Jersey, and I had an exchange student from a year for a year from Ecuador, and you know, I was pretty fluent, all things considered, but not in Los Angeles inner city uh, immigrant mix Spanish, and that was a it. whole different world and learning, understanding where there were cultural elements and where I had to integrate into a very, very different community, different society and navigate all the intricacies of that, which was a lot of fun um, and challenging and wonderful in all those ways. And then I moved to Japan again after a few years to a high school to develop a curriculum for a Japanese magnet school up there. And that was a different world because it's a different kind of bureaucracy and it's a different culture and different language and had to relearn a lot of those. And then when I came to Philadelphia, uh, later on, it was for graduate school. And mm. I did my PhD at the University of Pennsylvania in educational linguistics. And that was all looking at speech and how uh, speech is processed, how speech is learned, how foreign languages are learned, how the culture and uh, influences language and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. the academic research was all there. Yeah. And one thing led to another. And the hanging out a shingle later on and, and evolving into entrepreneurship and executive communication coaching and all that was, it did all spiral in sort of one tangent after another. Although I suppose, you know, spirals and tangents don't necessarily work together, but they, <laughs> from a geometric standpoint, but in the sure. metaphor, they will. Yeah. And, but one thing led to another and it did all build because my uh, initial coaching work 
as an independent, was working with international professionals in the United States who maybe had master's degrees from American universities, maybe not, mm. but were not native English speakers, I see. even though they were fluent. So if you think about your risk analysts at banks, your uh, pharmaceutical researchers, statisticians, you know those kinds of more numerically oriented typically, yeah. I was working with all international clients, Chinese, Indian, you name it, Russian, and trying to help them bridge the gap between being technically fluent and fitting in effectively into the culture of an organization and being seen as potential leaders. Hmm. Because there was that gap. They would be the first ones to be hired to do the technical jobs, but the last ones to be considered for a leadership level promotion. Sure. And it was always due to a communications gap on, on a number of levels. So helping them with that. And then there was a pivot, frankly, in around 2013, when I shifted to make it not just about the international expat, non-native English speaker, but everybody, because frankly, it's easier to work with native speakers <laughs> than non-native speakers, because everybody's, I, I learned that everybody, regardless of native language, was struggling with the same communication challenges. How yeah. do I get that stakeholder, my boss, my prospective clients, my Coworkers to understand my point. How yeah. do I get them to appreciate my my concerns? To accept the what the pitch I'm going to give them? How do I get through? How do I get the yes? It's just adding one extra layer or yeah. forty extra layers, as the case may be, <laughs> when you're dealing with somebody from a foreign language and foreign cultural background. Sure. Uh, so I just thought, well, why can't I do this for everybody? And that's where it became more about leadership communication and those nuances overall. Yeah. So that's been the long and short trajectory. So what came first, the coaching or your book? Oh, coaching. coaching. Definitely came first. Okay. Yes. The, I've been coaching since 2008. Okay. And uh, the book just came out in 2019, actually. Okay. I, I couldn't remember the exact mm -hmm. um, publication date. And I just wanted to make sure because that's another thing that I wanted to mention is that you've put a lot of what you've learned, one of the outputs that you've created in your career is a book. It's called Speaking to Influence. We'll link mm -hmm. to it in the show notes. Up front in the book, you you make a very clear distinction between the notions of persuasion, manipulation, and influence. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit more in the same way that you were just going down the path of like how do we get to this this idea of of an agreement on an idea or you know sign on enlistment those sorts of things? Sure. The my goal is always to help people master what I like to call the three C's, mm. and that's the ability to command the room, mm -hmm. connect with the audience, and close the deal. Mm. And closing the deal doesn't necessarily have to mean signing on the dotted line. It's yeah. about getting to yes, just yeah. moving the needle, agreeing to whatever the next step is going to be. Sure. And all of those things are about influence, right? To command the room, in our case, to command the screen and the camera is do you captivate people's attention? Mm -hmm. And then to connect with the audience is, do you feel like you get them and that they get you mm -hmm. somehow? Is, is there a mutual understanding? Is the connecting with the audience? And then closing the deal, of course, is that next agreeing on next steps, moving the needle. So in doing that, it's all about influence. Mm. And influence is about having an impact on someone's behavior. Okay. And it can be small, it can be about how they think and how those thought processes and feelings may influence their choices down the line. Or it's it can be large or small, but 
a lot of it can be measured, for example, by how do people behave when you're not in the room? Oh, okay. Right? What do they do when you're not there? And, uh, you know, what, so for example, a story that's in the book, a couple of years ago, I had an intern, worked with a number of them over the years, and I was looking, she was getting ready to graduate, so I needed to get a new one, and I was interviewing, and I had picked a candidate, and I said, but I want you to talk to the current intern first, and just get her take on it, because that's going to be the reality of your job. And I, you know, I don't, I don't want to influence what that conversation looks like. You sure. know, she needs to be able to be totally honest with you, good and bad. Right. And they apparently had a good conversation because the intern, the new one agreed to come on in. And when she started, I said, out of curiosity, you know, was there anything that Christina had said in our original, in, in your conversation that pushed you over the edge uh, to accept this? Yeah. And she said, yeah, she said, when you're doing these projects, and I was hiring them to work on a rather large project at the time, she said, when there are major deadlines, just know that there will be a few nights when you're going to be up until two o'clock in the morning. Okay. And you just sort of accept it and you go with it. She said, but Laura's going to be there on Skype at the time we were using right there with you until it's done. I see. And she said, that is what convinced me. Because it, the idea was that it's not just somebody who tells you, here's what you have to do. It's that we're in this together. You lead by example, that there's integrity there, that there's trust, that there's, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And she's like, that. okay, yeah, the 2 a.m. part is not great when they happen, <laughs> sure. but you're willing. And that's the difference between being a boss and being a leader, right? When you're a boss, people have to follow you because the org chart says so and they want to cash their check at the end yeah. of the week or month. But when you're a leader and your leadership is a perception. Okay. So when someone perceives you as a leader, because let's face it, you can have a boss who you do not view as a leader. Sure. But if they perceive you as a leader, they will follow you willingly and they will give generously. And it's from the heart because they believe in your shared vision. Ah. Uh. And that there was an ethos and there was a, a culture, even among our very, very small team, that was, we're in this together and we do this together because we want to achieve a certain thing together. Yeah. Um, so that was the, the influence part that came on. As far as persuasion and manipulation, persuasion is a strictly verbal form of influence. Mm, it's okay. a, a logical argumentation or bribery or whatever else, but it's, it's more about <laughs> the oral convincing sure. of someone to do it. I mean, there's negative persuasion as well. You know, you put a gun to my head. It's pretty persuasive, sure. but it's manipulation is a kind of persuasion or influence, but that is deliberately malintended, mm, okay. right? Where you're trying to get somebody to do something that you know they don't want to do and is not necessarily in their best interest, but it's in yours. I see. So it's putting the needs of yourself above somebody else and kind of strong arming them into doing it. That's more the manipulation. I so see. we want to avoid that. And I think it's important to recognize that all skills that you learn, whether it's about communication or uh, software development or internet use, et cetera, all skills can be used for good or used for evil. Yeah. So anything you learn from me, I will never teach you to manipulate. That does not mean that you couldn't choose to use it to manipulate somebody. Um, and I can't stop you from doing that. Hopefully I can have a good influence on you <laughs> sure. and you'll decide not to. Yeah. Um, but it is really all about what are the skills and then how do you choose to apply them? Yeah. One thing that I want to I want to pull out of what you're saying and having read through your book, you know, your book isn't just for 
folks who are managing people, right? Or in leadership Correct. roles or in management roles. You have a great story that you tell in the in the book where you talk about when you and your husband first got married and he would use this line on you, you know, he's he would say something like, Well, I was trained in logic. And so therefore, da 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 yeah. da. Yeah. Can you can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. Uh, that it's funny that you bring that up because even he laughs about it now and, and he'll say it kind of <laughs> semi-facetiously when we're disagreeing on something, he'll look and he'll smile and he'll go, Well, you know, I was trained in logic, or I'll just say it to him first. Well, you know, I, I think this and I know you think that, but then again, you were trained in logic. So that's I right. suppose I should just uh, my husband's an attorney. So that's a big part of law school is, you know, be trained in logic, trained in logic, trained in logic. But sure. you know, whenever initially when we were in a disagreement on something, he'd get to a certain point where he just was tired of the discussion and just wanted to sort of end it. And yeah. so what he would use as kind of his trump card uh, as a bridge reference, card game reference, not political reference, as the trump card was to just say, well, look, I was trained in logic. So that certainly initially led to a lot bigger arguments. But <laughs> when I started to realize the pattern, you know, I was able to say to him, look, when you say this to me, yeah. what I hear is that your three years in law school, 25 years ago, trained you to do this. So therefore, you must always be right. And right. if I disagree with you, then I must always be wrong. And apparently, my seven years of grad school to get my PhD was in <laughs> underwater basket weaving and tiddlywinks or something. And That's therefore, right. I am trained in illogic and right. <laughs> I must always be wrong. So I should just defer as a right. default. Right. And, you know, I said, how, does, how do you think that makes me feel? And what do you expect me to do with that? Yeah. And he kind of stopped at one point and stepped back and went, okay, I can see where that would come across that way. And, you know, he, he sort of backpedaled uh, generously and said, you know, I respect you. I respect your work. I respect your, your education. And, you know, I don't mean any of that uh, negative stuff, but I yeah. can see where you're here. And he's, you know, never used it since uh, other than in that sort of tongue in cheek way when we're both <laughs> sort of playing. Yeah. I also want to pull out one more detail about your book in that your book is not about tips and tricks. No. Right? This is not how to quickly get to persuasion or influence. The subtitle is Mastering Your Leadership Voice. But keeping that in mind, who is this book for and what is it for? Narrowly, you know, in Amazon, it's kind of listed as a leadership uh, business management book. Sure. However, as you have pointed out through the examples that you've brought up, among other things, it really is meant for anyone who just wants to hear yes more often. Mm. Anybody who's tired of feeling like if you hear yourself constantly repeating either out loud in frustration or in your own mind saying, I'm so frustrated, you know, why don't they get it? Mm-hmm. Right? Why don't they understand? Mm -hmm. that, why don't they hear what I'm saying? Yeah. Why do I keep getting pushback? Why am I always hitting a wall on this? And it's not necessarily that you're right or wrong. That's not the point. But yeah. something about the way that you are approaching that person, group, organization, whatever it is, is a square peg to a round hole. Mm. So you need to be able to redirect, understand something else about what their priorities are, what their concerns are, what their, where they're hamstrung, where they do or don't have flexibility to adapt in one way, shape, or form, or what their conscious or unconscious biases are, and yeah. how can you adjust your approach so that whatever your message is gets through? Yeah, because it's not always going to be on the first like here, take it, accept it, say yes, 
move on, do it my way. That That's almost right. never works. Right. A lot of the things that we've talked about thus far have to do with active strategies or active examples mm -hmm. of being aware of, you know, you talked about cultural biases, you talked about being aware of the way they were positioning language, but there's a whole chapter in your book about listening. How important is the listening side to that equation? I'm assuming that's a rhetorical question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, uh, so obviously the, the listening skills are are really critical and it's frustrating because most people listen to respond. Yeah. And I, I liken it to uh, if you've ever seen, if you've ever tried it yourself or otherwise seen video of kids doing double Dutch jump rope mm. on the playground. Uh, if you've ever, if you can imagine it, you know, the two ropes are spinning and as they're crisscrossing over and over again, you hear kind of the thwack, 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 mm -hmm. thwack as they mm -hmm. hit the ground. And the person who's getting ready to jump in is standing on the outside and they're kind of rocking back and forth with the rhythm of it, waiting, waiting, waiting. Like, can I jump in? Can I jump in? Okay, now, no, wait, wait. Uh, okay, now, and they jump in and there's this anticipation and it's all about just finding that perfect opening for you to yeah. leap in. And those two rotating ropes, yeah. it's like how we listen to other people speak. It's like, we're just watching, waiting for a breath, waiting for a pause, <laughs> waiting for something like, and I'm going to jump in now. Okay. You're not really listening to appreciate that person's concerns, priorities, perspective of any way. Yeah. So we're just listening to respond. And that's where we come to that very initial impasse because frustration, when two people are arguing and arguing and arguing, the if there were little thought bubbles above mm -hmm. each person's head, mm -hmm. both people would be thinking about the other person and sometimes saying, you're not listening to me. Yeah. And when both people feel like you're not listening to me, then they're not willing to hear the other person either. Most people feel like once I feel heard, once I feel understood, once I feel like you are trying to understand me, and hopefully you do, mm -hmm. then I can relax enough and then I can hear you better. Yeah. Then I will listen to you. Then I'm willing to concede some ground and listen to you and try to understand you. But when if you're in an argument with somebody or a disagreement and you can tell that they're more emotionally invested at the moment than you mm -hmm. are, let them talk first because mm. they will not be able to hear you mm. until they get it out of their system. The adrenaline subsides, the, the fog clears a little bit and then, okay, but they need you to listen, hear and understand, model it first, genuinely, yeah. sincerely, and then yeah. they can go from there. But that's absolutely mission critical. Yeah. You know, Right now, so many people are doing their jobs remotely. Yes. On a lot of video meetings, we're actually having our conversation on a video. You know, one of the things we had a pre-conversation before we're taping today, and you, you talked about this idea of how with everyone on video, and everyone's on video these days for some mm -hmm. reason, whether it's school or catch-up phone calls or professional reasons, you know, we all kind of want a disclaimer that says, we're more awesome in person. <laughs> So how do we overcome some of these challenges that are inherently built into the digital medium that aren't necessarily in place when we're doing these things in person? Well, there's a whole lot in that bag. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, when you think about the challenges of, I'm going to summarize what I think you're tying all together yeah, in that, okay. you know, with regard and tell me if I'm off and if you want me to focus on, you know, one specific sure. area or another, but there's the one hand, the challenge of 
are you clear in conveying what you want to convey and in understanding what they're trying to convey when, for example, you don't necessarily see people's body language or you can't see if you're the speaker on a Zoom call and everybody else has their cameras off, you can't yeah. read the room, as yeah. it were. People can't interact that well or are, you know, there's a lot of dynamics that are different. Yeah. Um, when you're not all in the room together. So there's mm -hmm. those challenges. But then there's also challenges on video like confidence. A lot of people are extremely self-conscious on video. So mm -hmm. they hold back or mm -hmm. they are not skilled at how to be effective on camera. So they don't even realize that they're sabotaging their own authority because they talk, look, sound based on audio quality, based on camera angles, based on lighting, based on sure. lots of little mechanical things that they look amateur. They yeah. look unconfident. Yeah. They sound bad. You know, the, even you and I have really good microphones, but mm -hmm. uh, if I were to switch over to my, I wonder if I can, let me try this. So if, oh, yeah. can I click the settings here? Nope. It's not letting me do it midstream. So, <laughs> but most people are there, if they're just using their uh, default microphone that comes in there with their laptop or desktop, they kind of sound like this. Yeah. And when everybody sounds like this, you kind of just assume it's normal and you <laughs> accept it, but it makes you sound lousy. And then suddenly yeah. if another person starts to talk and you hear this crystal clear sound, you naturally subconsciously give their words more weight. Yeah. You want to listen. Your your brain zeroes in on that sound. And then again, if the next person shows up and if the next person is you and you show up yeah. and you start to sound like this one more time, then- sure. As you're talking, because there's that fog over your voice, it tells people, it's the cue to everybody else, you know what, go ahead, check your email while they're talking. It's not that important. Right. So right. there's so many things that we do virtually that just, we don't even realize sabotage our own influence and effectiveness. Look, we talked about what is persuasion versus influence. Okay, well, if we're having that conversation, this conversation, and then somebody else starts to talk and they sound like this. <laughs> sure. What impact does that have? If your lousy sound quality is a cue to somebody else to say, eh, they, they, they're not that important. Go ahead, check your email, look at your text sure. messages on your phone, but you don't have to pay attention because they're not that important. Right. You just had a really huge influence on that person. You have now made them stop paying attention and gone to quote unquote multitask, which I'm pretty sure is defined nowadays <laughs> as paying attention to anything except you right? because of your sound that influenced their choice of yeah. action and not in your favor, right? So right. that's not manipulating, it's not persuasion, but it sure yeah. is influence. So, yeah. uh, and all those kinds of things about how to be effective here, there is, that is the focus of the course that I launched last month, which is called Virtual Influence. And you can check it out at virtualinfluence.com today. Okay. But the whole idea is, as you sort of mentioned in the beginning, that most of us do feel like in person, we know what we're doing. You know, we're yeah. professionals, we're, we're experts in stuff. And that when we have to suddenly see each other on video, we don't feel as proficient. And we do, I think a lot of clients that I work with do, a lot of groups I speak to do feel like they wish they could have a little disclaimer along the bottom that says, <laughs> I just want you to know, if you met me in person, you'd be impressed. You're right. Just you know, throwing that out there. So whatever you're about to experience here with me, take it with a grain of salt. Like that should not be our default, yeah. but it is, and that has influence, just not the kind that you want. 
Right. That notion of this is just a meeting, you know, even the idea of, well, this is just a meeting that I'm listening in on, mm-hmm. right? And not necessarily contributing to. So, sure. yeah, absolutely. I think we all have that mindset to some degree about this thing that we're doing for the next 30 minutes, hour. We're just doing this thing, like minimizing it a little bit. Sure. Yeah. J- just is one of the four letter words <laughs> of, of the decade. Absolutely. And when you think about it, you know, if you're on a call with a group and you keep your camera off, what right. message does it send? Right. I mean, why would somebody keep their camera off? Well, either they're self-conscious and don't want to be seen right. or they don't want you to see what's behind them, or they don't want you to know what they're doing because right. they're multitasking. They're on their phone. They're walking around. They're not here, present, focused, um, you know, it's, it's certainly doesn't say I'm confident I'm here, I'm present. You can trust me. It just says, you don't need to know. And, or, you know, it just shows that it's a lack of respect toward the speaker, because if you were the speaker and you're talking, you wouldn't want to be sitting there talking to a screen full of black boxes with names in them. You would want to see faces that you could you know, engage with and read. And uh, so why would you not give the speaker the same courtesy that you would want the audience to give you? Yeah. Right? There, there's somebody has to start the generosity wheel on this. Well, and I, and I would point out that I think you have taken your own advice in this way in going back and doing research on you as a person and your work. Um, and you look at some of the videos that you've posted over the years, um, you've changed your background, mm-hmm. right? You now, in the last year and a half or a couple of years, you've now changed the background in that, you know, you have the name of your business, you have your book name, um, you have your name up there. Um, so it looks almost like, you know, you're at a red carpet event and like this is the, this is the background for the banner. event. Yeah. Exactly. So you take this advice very seriously, even for yourself. Yes, you have to look if, and that's part of influence, right? Is the integrity of leading by example, as opposed yeah. to do as I say, not as I do. And that is important, especially now the days that so much of my coaching is about helping people be more influential here in this digital space. But if I looked like a schlub, why would you hire me to help you look professional and authoritative and relatable and trustworthy and all that kind of fun stuff? So yes, my, I mean, if you look at the media channel or any of my YouTube videos or things I've posted on LinkedIn over the years, yeah, sure. sure, My location has changed dramatically, but when a, I realized about a year ago that I was going to launch a podcast Mm -hmm. and I needed some slightly more uh, official setup equipment wise, et cetera. And of course, when COVID hit and I realized, okay, we're going to, be sitting here for a much longer <laughs> period of time, uh, I did want to up the brand and have something that was more official looking because this is what I do. So it has to reflect the brand image, the brand reputation. And I don't just mean yeah. the name, but the yeah. overall brand quality and brand promise that yeah. I give. So when you look and listen to what I say, the the delivery of the message through the sound quality, through the visual in the on the screen, et cetera, has to reflect the quality of the applications of of what it is that I'm actually teaching in the first place. Yeah. So in addition to some of the things that we've talked about, your book, um, your course, and we'll make sure to link that, you also gave a TEDx talk a number (laughs) of years ago, and that's garnered over 6 million views. Mm -hmm. And in the talk, you cite a study that looked at verbal and nonverbal messaging cues, Mm -hmm. including the words, vocal delivery, body language, and the relative impact that each of those things has. Can you share the stats that explain why that's so important? And and I'm asking this question because in your talk itself, you talk about how 
sometimes the data from this study is misused. Yes. So I, I want to make sure we put a finer point on it and, and quote unquote, get it right. Thank you. I appreciate that opportunity to do some myth busting uh, along the way and set the record straight. Uh, it is probably the most, uh, the single most misquoted statistic in communications research. And that's the idea that when you break down speech into kind of three channels, when you think about it, if you, when you're talking to somebody, you're communicating in three, and this is only oral speech, communicating through three channels all at the same time. There's okay. your words, your voice, and your body language. Okay. And the words are the what you say. That's mm -hmm. the verbal channel, mm -hmm. verb as in you know words and verbs, nouns, etc. The think of it as your transcript. Okay. What you would see on paper. The vocal is the sound of those words mm. as they come out, which is not the same because when you think about it, the phrase two words: nice haircut. Mm. On paper, I could write it down twice; looks completely identical. But if once I say nice haircut. And once mm. I say, nice haircut. <laughs> yeah, totally different. <laughs> totally different, right? So yeah. all the, in that case, all the meaning is in the delivery, right? It's in yeah. the tone. Yeah. And you like one makes you want to say thank you very much, and one makes you want to say something else very much. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so that's the verbal versus vocal distinction. And then the third is the visual, and that's the body yeah. language. So yeah. if you're having a conversation with somebody and you're a little bit of an argument. You go, would you just let me finish what I'm saying, please? And they go, okay, fine. Right. And you know, they they uh, you know they put their chin on their on their hand and they roll their eyes and stare at the ceiling with this yeah. sort of slanty <laughs> mouth, going, all right, fine, I won't talk. You keep talking. I'm listening. You're going. I'm going to punch you in your mouth. No, you're not listening. That's not listening. That's completely condescending and insulting. Right. And that just is going to prolong this discussion because now I'm officially insulted and right. you know all that kind of stuff. So you're your I'm pretty face... sure my seven year old did that yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's like thank you for channeling your inner seven year old. Awesome. That's right. How old are you again? <laughs> That's right. This is not effective you know productive conversation that we're having. So right. you know you're uh, it's one of those things where sometimes you don't even have to open your mouth. Your your face says everything. Yeah. And uh, that can get us in even more trouble than our mouth sometimes. So sure. the point being when you look at those three channels if all of them are in alignment, mm -hmm. right? If they're all communicating the same thing at the same time, I say, nice haircut. I am smiling it's sincerely, not with like a smirk. And yeah. my tone of voice is friendly about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, you'll perceive alignment and you'll appreciate that this was genuinely a compliment. Yeah. But when the words and the voice, you know, when the one eyebrow is cocked, the <laughs> voice goes, Ew. even yeah. though the words say nice haircut, the words don't match the two other channels. Yeah. Right? There, there's something incongruous. There's something that's a mixed message. Yeah. And so the goal is to make sure that the message is always aligned if you want people to understand the inherent meaning of the words as they are. Sure. The, but when there are mixed signals, then the audience's attention doesn't know where to go. And yeah. it gets disproportionately divided up between those different channels. And what the research shows is that, again, when you're sending mixed messages, the audience is trying to figure out which part to trust, which part to anchor onto. Yeah. And it is the audience is most likely their brains will tune in first to what they see. Seeing is believing. Mm -hmm. So if I see your face and you've got that smirk and the one eyebrow cocked and whatever else, I'm already going to use that as a filter mm. to interpret everything else. 
Mm. because seeing is believing. Sure. So what the statistics showed is about 55, this is a seminal study actually from back in the 60s that has been built on over the years, um, Albert Morabian's work, but that about 55% of their divided attention will anchor onto your physical communication, your body language and facial expressions if it doesn't match Mm. everything else. And from there, about 38% of their attention or how they wait, deciding what to believe is based on the tonality of your voice, the highs and the Mm. lows and the melody of it. So when you think about the difference in those two nice haircut examples, nice haircut Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. versus nice haircut. Mm. 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 Right. So the melody is different. And that's where that's the second strongest factor. And then that only leaves about 7% of the weight that people place on what to believe mm. on the actual words that you choose. I see. And that's the words nice haircut, which in this case doesn't help me at all right. to figure out what you really mean. So again, the, the goal is to ensure that your words, voice, and body language are in alignment yeah. because then there, those stats, 55, 38, 7 they don't exist because it's just 100% focusing on the message. Now, if your intent is to be sarcastic, then you deliberately misalign because you want them (laughs) to read the insincerity of the words. That's that's, so that is a different ballgame, but you know, I just use that as, as a simple example to show the different channels. Yeah. You hear people say very broad generalizations like, well, you know, 55% of all communication is nonverbal. And sometimes <laughs> I've even heard, well, you know, 93% of all communication is nonverbal. I'm going, yeah, no, that's not it at all. So right. if you hear somebody say that, I go, no, I heard no. no. Laura said no. That's not the case. So you have my permission to go and be extremely ardent with that person and set the record straight. Cool. Well, in your book, you talk about two of those areas, right? You talk about vocal delivery and you talk about body language and how that ladders into how we might prepare. And I think this is really relevant, especially now, because we are having a lot of remote meetings, video meetings where Mm -hmm. we're doing presentations, Mm -hmm. you know, lots of show and tell. Myself, professionally, as a design director, I find a fair amount of my day being engrossed in preparing decks, designing decks, the slides, the numbers, The text, you know, are we telling the right story? So all of those things, you know, graphics, animation. How much does that matter? How much does it matter to sit down? Because I feel like 90% of my work is usually spent slaving over the actual presentation. (laughs) Yes. And a scant 10% is used for, you know, sort of like running through any sort of keywords, plot points, or like other Mm -hmm. things that I want to hit. And then the how of it, how do I actually talk about it? Yes, that is a big challenge because it's not to say that the and in the book I talk about all three channels equally. That's yeah. it's not just that I only talk about the delivery part. But when you think about how most people prepare, if anybody out there thinks about how they prepare for our meetings, our presentations, our pitches, or whatever it is, it usually is ninety eight point something percent on the content, right? Getting the slides, making the spreadsheets, the handouts, the agendas, the emails, your talking points, all that kind of stuff. It's all about the what. What I'm trying to argue is that if so much of your work is put there and basically none of your preparation effort is put on working on how you deliver it, how you execute it, ask yourself, what are the odds that your delivery will come through in full alignment. Mm. And 
it's not about you know sincere versus sarcastic necessarily as with the haircut example sure. but things like if you're trying to pitch your business or you're trying yeah. to pitch for a promotion or you're trying to pitch an idea to yeah. your group to your client to whoever it is you know you're kind of talking like this and with the vocal fry when you're mm -hmm. kind of creaking out and you, know, you may start okay but you keep sort of trailing off and it's just because you're really tired of being on zoom all the time and you know you, you haven't moved in like eight hours so you've got a butt divot shaped hole in the bottom of your chair and you're just really <laughs> sick of being here so yeah. it doesn't matter that like what you're saying is all true and your yeah. idea is good but yeah. If I'm trying to project authority and confidence and leadership and passion and trustworthiness and all that kind of stuff, the fact that I sound like this is I'm going through my slides, slide one, bullet A, B, C, slide two, chart, graph, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like it just sucks the life out of it. And you're going, <laughs> oh my word, please stop talking. Right. So that has influence, just not the kind you want. Yeah. So you do really need to pay attention to, okay, do you need to energize? Do you need a cup of coffee? Do you need to walk around a little bit and stretch beforehand? Can you do a little bit of recording? Just your opening slide. How do you welcome yeah. people? What's What tone do you set at yeah. the start of a meeting? Are you excited to be here? Are you thanking everybody for taking time out of their day to, to listen to this, whatever it is? Um, are you seeking input? Do you want, how do you want them to participate? What do you tell them? And what does it sound like? Watch, set your, take your iPhone, Turn on the video camera and just yeah. rehearse that first opening slide. Yeah. What's it going to sound like? Watch yourself. Yeah. There are some things where you'll go, that's really good. And there are some things you'll see and hear that will make you go, oh my gosh, okay, no, <laughs> don't do that again. So, yeah. you know, but when you are clear on that and you can then control it to yeah. make sure that you're conveying what you want to convey, because we all say things like, yeah. I want to be seen as intelligent and sure. as confident and as passionate and as that. Well, what do those sound like? Because it's not yeah. just about how good are the ideas, how accurate are yeah. your equations and your your numbers and your stats and whatever you've crunched, yeah. but it's about do they buy into you yeah. before they buy into your idea? Because that is usually what's required. And that's a problem. You need to see, are is your delivery sabotaging your content before you even get past hello? Yeah. So... That's a really good distinction. Laura, we're getting to the end of the time that we've planned to talk today. Um, and I want to make sure there isn't subject matter that that we haven't addressed that you want to get into. I think what's most important, frankly, is to recognize that this is every bit as relevant with your coworkers, boss, employee, colleague, client vendor or otherwise, as it is with people in your personal life. Mm. And it is, whether it's with your spouse or significant other, your children, your neighbors, your friends and, uh, you know, co-parishioners at church versus temple, mosque, wherever you go, religious mm -hmm. house, it always applies. It just would be applied slightly differently for that audience. And the real key is to recognize that you can adapt for each of those contexts and each of those audiences and still be you. Yeah. That authenticity piece, A, is essential because if you're faking it, people can smell fake like dogs smell fear. 100%. Right? And so that'll just rip the rug right out from under you. Yeah. But you 
do need to think about how to adjust for that particular group. Even if you're giving feedback to an employee, is one employee extremely sensitive and you know needs to very concerned about making everybody happy versus another one who's just like, just tell me. <laughs> you know, you got a problem? Right. All right, tell me. I'll just fix it. it. I'm, you know, whatever. Just, yeah. yeah. Okay. So adjust your approach because yeah. they both need to hear it in a different way. If you're too soft with the guy who likes the sledgehammer, he's going to see you as wishy-washy and weak and not respect you. And if you're sure. too direct with the one who needs the, the feather touch, then they're going to be crushed and not be able to process what you want them to focus on. They're going to over-focus on irrelevant details. So yeah. you do need to adjust. And it's what I refer to as my as your prismatic voice. And mm. that's in the book as well. But the idea being, you've seen all those little crystal-y things that people hang on windows in the car or in the kitchen, wherever, and the sunshine comes through, hits it, and then you yeah. see the little rainbow out the other yeah. side. The same mm. way that all those rainbow colors are in the white light, the prism allows to come through. You are white light. I am yeah. white light. Each of us yeah. is white light. And we have all those colors inside. And the context that we're in, whoever we're talking to for whatever purpose is that prism. And for the purposes there, we need to figure out which of all those rainbow colors needs to come out yeah. for it to be most effective. You mentioned you've got a seven-year-old. I have a four-year-old. I don't know about you. I don't talk to my son like I'm talking to you here. It would <laughs> sure. not fly. And no. nor am I going to talk to you and do this interview the same way I talk to him because sure. I would never get another client again, at least sure. not for what I'm trying to sell now. It doesn't right. work. But right. it's not that either one of those is the real us and the other right. one is the fake us. It's just right. that you know we could call this our blue voice and call that parenting voice our orange or something. And you just know, sure. okay, here, turn up the hue a little more blue. Here, yep. turn it down a little more orange. But it's all us. And learning yeah. to pivot your professional communication in that same way helps you feel authentic and grow at the same time. Yeah. I, I want to put a finer point on that because in reading your work and, and pre preparing for this interview, you're not teaching people how to act differently. Mm -mm. If this is not, you're, you're not an acting coach, nope. but really it's about bringing out your best and most effective self. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. I'm uh, <laughs> absolutely not a performer. Not to, yeah, you want to see something ugly, give me a Shakespeare script and tell me to do something with it. You know, the best thing I can do is maybe make an airplane and even that won't be very good. I'm definitely not a performer in that sense. I mean, I love being on stage, love public speaking, but sure. that's different. I'm not an actor. Couldn't teach you to act if my life depended on it. So thank you for that very important distinction. And it, it is really all about being yourself and just letting the best part of you shine through. Yeah. So Laura, let's get into some of the closing questions that I ask all the guests. What's one of the most important lessons that you've learned so far in your life? Ooh, there have been a lot, that's for sure. I think one really important one when dealing with conflict, mm. and conflict can be in any kind of context, be it uh, culture shock, you know, being business culture or national culture or whatever, somebody does something that makes you go, what? <laughs> <laughs> It is important to learn to respond, but not react. Uh, respond, not react. Okay. Right. And the distinction between the two is that reacting is a reflex. It's okay. just gut level, instinctive, uh, either fight or flight kind of response, yeah. uh, reaction, I should say. To react more thoughtfully is to take a step back and 
it's something that I like to call approach it with a split brain perspective, where okay. on the one hand, and this is, has nothing to do with any of you, you know, neurocognitive scientists out there. It's not about hemispheres. <laughs> so take go with the metaphor here. <laughs> but the idea is if you allow yourself on the one hand, you know, acknowledge your own emotions like, oh, okay, this is very upsetting to me, or this is really... Uh, surprising or uncomfortable or whatever it is, I don't like this, you're allowed to have your feelings. You can acknowledge them. You don't have to invalidate your feelings. Just don't let them control you or Mm. how you respond. Then back up, take a sort of third party objective view, a little out of body experience vantage point for the moment and say, Mm -hmm. okay, what's happening? Mm -hmm. What did they say or do that surprises me? Why does it surprise me? And what else might be causing it? And if I don't know, perhaps I should ask some questions for clarification or try to get more information to understand it better before I dive in and you know launch with a retaliatory uh, argument of some sort. Yeah. Because often if you can at least back off and say, okay, let's figure out what just happened here because yeah. I'm missing something. Yeah. And, and approach from that point of curiosity and suspending disbelief for a moment, doing a little bit more forensic research, as it were, yeah. uh, you'll probably find out more information that will help you appreciate where they were coming from and then help them help you, so to speak, and, and figure out a better way to respond that will mend fences and, and bridge gaps, as it were, rather than digging holes deeper. Okay. That's a, that's a really good piece of advice. So what are two things that you're excited about now? And the way I ask this question be something that you're reading or something that you're watching, the things that you're absorbing right now that if you were at a at a dinner party, like this is these these are two of the things that you wouldn't stop talking about. <laughs> That's funny that you use that as an example because it's probably depending on the party, I probably would not talk about this because they'd be like, Yeah, we need a drink if you're gonna keep talking about this stuff. Let's go to refill first. The book that I've been that I'm just finishing now is an old a classic, but it's caught from the 60s, I forget exactly what year, 64, something like that, by Maxwell Maltz called okay. Psychocybernetics. Okay. And it is the foundation of a lot of uh, psychology and things, but it's really looking at why people make certain choices, but it all stems from a self-image thing. And I know that sounds painfully touchy-feely and new agey and whatnot, but it's actually the exact opposite. Uh, And anybody who knows me knows that I am not a foofy, new agey, you know, no disrespect to new age fans, but like, I don't do fluff. That's just not something you subscribe to. I couldn't do it if, yeah, nope. Not me, but this is hardcore science. And it's actually the psychology on which hypnotherapy is based and hypnosis in general. It's the psychology behind, it was a seminal book when it came out and has really become the foundation for so much more in modern psychology. But if you want to look at why we do what we do, why we don't break habits, um, no matter how much you try to manage time better, eat better, you know what you need to do. Like I can write the book on diet and exercise. (laughs) Sure. But am I going to stick with it? Right. Yeah, well, sure. We'll talk about that at a different time. Um, yeah. <laughs> but now understanding why and yeah. why behaviors don't change and what it takes to actually change them and where it's it all comes down to communication in its own way. But uh, it's it's just fascinating to see what how you can actually manipulate your own mind. Yeah. Uh, in a, again, I don't know how to say this in a way. If you don't read it, yeah. you won't understand that this is really neurocognitive science based. And it is to explain it in one or two sentences is like 
okay, so what was she smoking before she came on the show? And actually, where do I get some? Because maybe it's pretty good stuff if she's buying right. into this nonsense. But check it out. Maxwell Maltz, uh, Psycho-Cybernetics okay. is the book. And it is, um, it's pretty mind-opening. Okay. So Laura, we've talked about a few things already. We've talked about your book, your TEDx talk, and we'll absolutely link to those. Um, you mentioned a course that you just started. Where are other places that people can find out more about you? Uh, the simplest place, of course, is my website, which is vocalimpactproductions.com. Tune into the podcast, which is like the book. It's called Speaking to Influence. Yeah. And you can either go to the website for that, which is speakingtoinfluence.com, uh, where there are links to all the different platforms. If you like iTunes, Spotify, you know, whatever sure. else, uh, links are there along with a link to my book. Uh, the podcast is fun because each week I interview a business leader, uh, or I should say a leader from a business for profit or nonprofit organization, yeah. ranging from local nonprofits like Women Against Abuse up through executives at Comcast and the like to strictly discuss the role of communication as an essential leadership skill. Mm. So it's not about the business per se, not about the industry, not even so much about them, but about the communication piece. You can go to my LinkedIn page is always easy, business and or personal. I, that's my main connection as far as my, my social media preference, although I am on some of the other platforms as well, sure. uh, from Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and that kind of stuff. Otherwise, the course, you can take a peek at it at virtualinfluence.today, not okay. .com. It's virtualinfluence.today. Okay. Well, thank you, Laura, so much for making time today. I really enjoyed our conversation and I, I learned so much and I hope that my listeners also likewise. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Skipper. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, anybody who wants to, who has more questions or ideas or et cetera, feel free to come in and reach out on social media or come to the website again. You can get in touch with me there. Awesome. And thank you for listening to How This Works. This episode was edited and mastered by Troy Lococo. Please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. This is the first season of our show. And it would mean so much if you could tell just one other person about it and why they should listen. You can find How This Works online at howthisworks.show. It's three words, no dashes. Again, that's howthisworks.show. We're also active in the places where social media does its thing. I hope that you learned something from my conversation with Laura. For sure I did. And we'll talk again soon. Let's see. Uh, how's my sound with you? It looks like it's the amplitude is okay. How's tone? Do I need to adjust gain or anything? No, I think that I think it, if it sounds good in your headphones, I think it, it's uh, it, it looks good from what I can tell.